Jay, why are so many alternate universes so bleak? Well, Miles, I kind of think of that as the Anna Karenina problem. See, there are relatively few ways to fix things compared to a lot of different ways to ruin them. Seriously, are there any unambiguously positive universes? Or at least ones where everything works out for the best, mostly? Well, we'll always have Earth 200,500. Which one's that again? It's the one where the Avengers all have beards. Oh, right, I love that one. But it doesn't count, it's a one-panel gag. I mean, a delightful one-panel gag, mind you, but still. Okay, okay, fine. Let me think. Got it. Got it. Earth 42,409. There's a whole story set there, and everything works out fine, at least once they get the Infinity Gauntlet away from... Thanos. Santa Claus. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 299 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and its bleakest, well, one of its bleakest, but definitely its most persistent alternate universe, The Age of Apocalypse, where we've been hanging out for the last, you know, thousand or so episodes. It has been quite a few, but we are so close to the end. We are so close to X-Men Omega, the final chapter of the series. That said, we decided to take a detour first. That's right. Instead of the main Age of Apocalypse storyline, we're going to be taking a look at some alternate alternate timelines. These are ones that either branch off from or somehow correlate with Earth-295 instead of 616. There have been so many X-Men what-if stories. So many. My personal favorite is What If the New Mutants Stayed in Asgard, because of course it is. All of my favorites involve Wolverine being Lord of the Vampires, because what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, good old Logan, Lord of the Vampires. Miles, vampires may already be in control of America's nuclear arsenal. That really is one of the best lines in comics, isn't it? Is it bad that that currently feels like a better option than the, the actual state of things? Yeah, yeah, 2020 sure is a thing. But we are far from the present day and far from the present reality and the stories we're going to be covering. But first, let's talk a little bit about the regular old Age of Apocalypse. Let's talk about the core premises of Earth-295 and all the what-if universes that spin out of it. Professor Xavier's extremely trash son, Legion, traveled back in time to kill Magneto so that his dad wouldn't have to spend much of the future fighting a former friend in a metal hat. But in the past, Xavier and Magneto were still friends, and Xavier, being Xavier, sacrificed his own life to save that of his pal, Eric. Which kind of broke the world. History was rewritten from that point forward, things went downhill fast. Apocalypse, the big blue baddie who thought only the strong should survive but had really iffy views on how to achieve that, rose to power early, and without Xavier and his X-Men to stop him, turned that world into a mutant supremacist hellscape. Magneto founded his own X-Men team in his dead friend Charles's honor, and they eventually managed to execute a complicated plan to restore history, erasing their own timeline in the process. We'll get to that stuff next episode. But what if... Things had gone differently. If only there were a series specifically designed to examine such questions. 
And indeed there is. And we'll be talking about three issues in that series. Or at least with that branding, the third one's kind of not. Or I guess the second one is we're covering it. Anyway. Well, there have been two, I believe there have been two, possibly three central What If series. Plus What If miniseries and one-offs that are branded and attached to specific timelines or events. Exactly. We're going to start off with the relatively straightforward What If Volume 2, Number 77, What If Legion Had Killed Magneto, also titled One Dream. This was published in September of 1995, so was this running parallel to the Standard Age of Apocalypse? I think it was a little bit after, but not far after. This issue's story was written by Benny Powell, dialogue by Warren Ellis, pencils by Hector Gomez, inks by John Livesey and Mike Halbleeb, colors by Sam Parsons, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And the writing of this issue is quite solid, I gotta say. And the art is this sort of slightly sloppy version of the 90s house and or cartoon style that I think really fits this story. Yeah, it feels like it should be one of one of the X-Men issues set in the cartoon world. I don't remember what that series was called. What was it again? Uh, that was X-Men Adventures, I believe. I had a bunch of them. Right, right. I was thinking it couldn't be that because Marvel Adventures is its own timeline, but this is the X-Men Adventures timeline, and comics are ridiculous. But speaking of timelines, this issue, which came out in 1995, is set on Earth-77995, and that uses the alternate universe nomenclature that we discussed in a recent question, where it's based at least in part on when the issue came out. So 77995, that's issue 77, September, month 9, 1995. Try naming your own universes, kids. It's fun and easy. The first panel of this issue tells us a lot about this world. We have Xavier in an X logo tie, not like the X-Men logo that's on their belt buckles, but the X from the comic logo on the front of the comic. And he's just looking dazed at his desk with magazine covers of Shadowcat in Seventeen Magazine and Dazzler and Rolling Stone Magazine behind him. So I don't remember which magazine it is, but there was a magazine that in the aughts would sometimes let its, its cover stars style a photo shoot. And I really want to see the issue of Seventeen that Kitty got to style. Oh man, that would be amazing. And also I bet if she could uh, get away with it, she would be in so many different outfits in the picture spreads. Yeah, that's that's standard for a, a cover star fashion spread, Miles. Well, it would be perfect for her then. I guess I haven't read a lot of uh, magazines like that. I don't know. I mean, they exist. There's really good stuff in some of them. Teen Vogue is amazing now. I know. Yeah, Teen Vogue is like part of the revolution, which fuck yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really terrific magazine. Anyway, this world, Earth 77995, is one where humans and mutants get along. Mutant groups are basically celebrities because this is a world where, like the title says, Magneto was killed by Legion. So Xavier never had Magneto to oppose him and his X-Men. He also never had Magneto to be well, in some ways, a conscience. Although I can't fully blame that on Xavier, because as we find out, as Xavier goes to watch Forge training the X-Men in the Danger Room, the X-Men aren't Xavier's anymore. He basically got forced off to the margins of the organization, and Forge is now their field and PR leader. Is this the worst Forge? I don't know. We don't see how badly he fucks up his dating life, but probably pretty badly. This might be the most low-key depressing Forge. Well, the object of his dating life in the main universe is really not pleased with how this training session is going. 
Bread and circuses. No strategy, no leadership. Just another X-Men cartoon. Hey, the X-Men cartoon totally had strategy. It's just that most of the strategy was Wolverine grabbing somebody, rolling around on the ground, and yelling Gene a lot. You're not being entirely fair. Other characters also sometimes yell Gene. Yeah, yeah, at the very least, Scott. But yeah, in this world, the X-Men are basically figureheads. Like, yes, they dress up in brightly colored costumes, which do look pretty fucking awesome, actually. They have this off-center X motif that reminds me a lot of the X-Factor Forever costumes. It's like a midpoint between the X-Factor costumes and the X-Factor Forever costumes, because if you'll remember, the X-Factor Forever ones are all basically street clothes, just with the asymmetrical X, and these are designed and styled much more like the original ones, but with the X moved asymmetrical. It's really cool. I mean, I know the X-Men are basically marketing tools in this universe, but marketing departments aren't all bad. They make good costumes sometimes. And, you know, also market legitimately good things sometimes. Nothing against our marketing listeners. I mean, I feel strongly that fictional character Janet Van Dyne would back me up on the idea that just because you are a legitimate superhero team doesn't mean that you can't actually have thoughtfully designed costumes. Legit. But the X-Men are training for a choreographed PR-based fight they're going to have with the Hellfire Club, who are the other big mutant organization in this world where humans and mutants get along just fine. God, that's weird. I know, right? Xavier got a Xavier, so he's like, hey, Forge, I need my X-Men because I keep sensing these very powerful mutant presences. They show up and then they disappear, and I'm really worried. And Forge basically says, dude, these aren't your X-Men anymore. They are mine, and all that detective nonsense, that's not what they do. They do important stuff. And then he yells at the X-Men for sucking at doing Danger Room stuff. He also offers to have them fight Care Bears, and I really wish that he'd actually run with that. Oh, man. Now I'm just imagining the Care Bears in the Hellfire Club, and actually that Leland guy kind of looks like a Care Bear anyway. He's very beardy. Well, Havoc basically has Care Bear powers, right? He totally does, yeah. In fact, I have a Havoc Care Bear. Yeah, as I recall, it's, like, wonderful and perfect, but the dye that was used on the fur means it, like, gets black marker everywhere. Uh, it's actually Sharpie. So. Oh. Well, it still looks really good. It is. He's got programmable light effects in his belly. Just like a real Care Bear. Speaking of the Hellfire Club, they're having a board meeting, and their composition is interesting. Like, the X-Men were mostly a lot of the X-Men that we know. The Hellfire Club, we have some of the original Hellfire Club folks, like Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost are there. We also have a couple of externals. We have Black Tom in the biggest collar I've seen outside of a Doctor Strange comic. And we have Angel and Iceman. Angel's been an on-and-off member of the Hellfire Club for years, and we know really pretty much from the start that he's got some degree of legacy connection to them. Iceman is a surprising addition. What's going on there? Well, we learn later from what other characters are saying that apparently he's really into money, and like, I know he's an accountant, but I don't know if that's really a line you can draw. And we also learn that he's in a serious relationship with Emma Frost, which given that this came out in 95, like, okay, I could see you going in that direction. I, I believe it's Forge who does actually refer to her as, as his trophy girlfriend at some point. But the other thing that, that, that actually made me buy Iceman in this is knowing the eventual direction that Age of Apocalypse Iceman would take. Iceman is a character who tends to be at loose ends and is really heavily influenced by the context around him. And if you stick enough cynicism in there, he goes villain pretty hard and pretty fast. He does, yeah. So, while Sebastian Shaw and Angel are arguing about the ethics of acquiring a Genotion terror lab, 
Kandra and Gideon take the opportunity to call in Apocalypse's forces, who they're secretly working with, to show up and kill everybody. So in comes Sabretooth, Pyro, Vanisher, Polaris, and a generic war and a generic death. Someone else arrives too. He is not with Apocalypse's forces. He is just there to help his life partner. Um, that is Juggernaut, who who shows up to help Black Tom Cassidy, and it's really sweet, but they both die anyway. Kane's coming, buddy! Aw, poor guys. And this is a universe where Apocalypse has not revealed himself up until this point. This is his big strike, and it's very clear nobody's really prepared to face a threat of his magnitude. Speaking of Iceman, he does not fare well. In fact, he gets severely burned, first by Pyro and then by the narration. Robert Drake ends his pointless, ugly life in a pointless, ugly way. Ouch. Xavier isn't aware of all that drama going on, so he goes to visit Scott Summers and Jean Grey, who have retired from the X-Men and are living in Anchorage with their perfectly normal teen kids, Nathan and Rachel. Or nominally normal. They're actually hiding their mutations from the neighbors. They are they're superficially and nominally living as a normal family, and they left the X-Men a long, long time ago. Apparently in this universe, the pre-space part of the Dark Phoenix saga, you know, like with the Hellfire Club and Jean almost killing the X-Men on Earth, that all happened. But the Imperial Guard never got involved, the Shi'ar in general never got involved, Jean didn't die on the moon. So, yeah, they just said, screw this, we want to live a normal life, we don't want to deal with all the drama and danger and publicity and death that comes with being an X-Man. They retired. I think that's entirely reasonable. I mean, I, I think the faking being human is kind of sad and messed up, but I think being like, yeah, everyone we know dies or puts on weird fake show fights that are creepy and uncomfortable, we don't really want to be part of that, is a very healthy stance to take. Well, Xavier disagrees about the whole thing. I'll see myself out. And I shall try not to disturb your neighbors. And he heads off to Washington, D.C., where he's giving a big speech about mutant-human relations— this speech has also been partially modified to include mourning for the lost Hellfire Club International members since their building done got blowed up. Unfortunately, he doesn't get to finish his speech because Ship shows up and with Ship, of course, Apocalypse. And Apocalypse's forces just shred like almost all of the X-Men in one single page. Right, these are X-Men who are pretty much only used to fighting in choreographed fights at this point. They're basically professional wrestlers. And Apocalypse himself grabs Xavier and gives a series of really good short villain speeches. I am your Apocalypse, Xavier. I am the antithesis of your weak dream. Come to show the world the strength of mine. For mine was tempered in fire, and yours went untested, and became a joke. Ouch. And Xavier, tears in his eyes, agrees. I... I know. Meanwhile in Alaska, Scott and Jean see this going down on TV, and decide that fine, okay, they probably should actually sit up and intervene. 
And so Jean uses the Phoenix Force to do that power that we always forget, but I love that it's a specific Phoenix Force power, and she molecularly modifies their clothing into being their superhero costumes. I literally never forget that it's a Phoenix power. It's pretty great. Uh, their costumes, again, look really cool! I love the costume design in this world. The X-Men may be ineffective, but they are damn stylish. They fly to DC just in time to help Xavier in his dying act kill Apocalypse. But Apocalypse's forces are still around, and they're going to destroy humanity. In fact, they're bragging about it. So Scott and Jean decide there's only one thing to do. And Jean uses the Phoenix Force to, as the narration says, tear a hole in the world. So, uh, there goes Washington, D.C. and the surrounding environs, I guess. Months later, alas, the tides have turned. Anti-mutant hysteria, even in one interview from Iron Man, has arisen in the form that we're largely familiar with it. And Jean is is very, very well aware of the Pyrrhic victory she's achieved. I did it for you, Charles. For your dream. I helped you like you wanted me to, and now they hate us. But, as we know, the X-Men at their, are at their best backs against a wall, and so Scott and Jean reopen the school, and the last thing we see of them is welcoming Generation X to a new start into the survival and the continuation of Xavier's dream. We also see Apocalypse's followers, who now interestingly include both Wolverine and Psylocke, preparing their own forces for what it looks like is going to be a recapitulation of Earth-616's Xavier-Magneto conflict. Wolverine at least makes a lot of sense, because Xavier recruited Wolverine as part of his second X-Men team, and if the X-Men were primarily excellent as a PR stunt and Magneto wasn't around, he probably wouldn't have needed one. Yeah, that's a really good point. And he definitely, even if he had, wouldn't have gone for Wolverine, who is kind of PR poison. Yeah, he's, he's a little more murdery than you typically want, uh, to, as far as being the friendly face of your cause. So yeah, we have this issue that postulates, if Magneto wasn't around, the X-Men wouldn't have gotten to be badass, and they would have gotten slaughtered by Apocalypse, and that would have been terrible. Which, uh... I mean, it's pessimistic, sure, but it's a what-if issue. Of course it's pessimistic. They're almost all pessimistic. Which, speaking of pessimistic issues, brings us to the most recent of these published that we're going to look at, in which the worst-case scenario goes down. This is, what if, Age of Apocalypse, what if Legion had killed Xavier and Magneto? Written by Rick Remender, art by Dave Wilkins, colored by Anthony Washington, with letters by Nate Picos, and... This um, this was, I believe, published in 2005 or 6? 2007, actually. One of the idea I got proximal years, 2007. So, man, this comic is bad and it should feel bad. It's, I mean, I was highly entertained by it, but I wouldn't call it a good comic, yeah. It's, uh, so it's Rick Remender doing writing. We've seen him do a bunch of Uncanny X-Force, a very good run on that. He wrote a lot of Axis. He also did that questionable Uncanny Avengers arc with Havoc's M-word speech. So if there's anything we know about Rick Remender on the X-Men, it's that the quality of his runs on it really cover a very wide spectrum. Yeah, seriously. 
Uh, the art by Dave Wilkins, I don't know, it's this, like, sketchy, rough-inked style that I think does suit the raw tone of Remender's writing. Whether you like the comic itself or not, I think it's a good artistic match. It fits the story. Um, it's very, very action-y. It's kind of exaggerated. It definitely doesn't help lend coherence to anything, but honestly, I'm not entirely sure what could. This is basically a bunch of stuff happening, and I think the background narration at the beginning might be the most interesting part. Oh man, are we going to do all of that? It's not that much. Okay, well, you're a fast talker anyway. I've been watching Legend of Coruscant, so I'll try to run through it with classic announcer speed. In this world, legions attack ended in countless gruesome deaths. This would be humanity's first introduction to the existence of mutants. Panicked governments placed mutants in concentration camps, thus temporarily suppressing Apocalypse's domination over humanity. The world flourished with non-mutant superhumans, while Kazar of the Hidden Savage Land offered mutants refuge. Eventually, Apocalypse amassed and unleashed an army of mutant stormtroopers all fueled by the indignation born of the injustices they had suffered at the hands of humanity. Their onslaught came with such deadly and swift precision that soon none were left to oppose them. Apocalypse erected an enormous slaughterhouses to exterminate the remaining human population. All mutants and superhumans became servants of the regime of Apocalypse, or they, too, were executed. Decades later, as the rest of the world wilted under Apocalypse, the Savage Land not only remained unspoiled, it flourished. Most of the inhabitants believed that Apocalypse had extended mercy to them, his kin, but some knew better. So, basically, without Xavier or Magneto, we go hard in the Days of Future Past direction, and then do a total 180 into the Age of Apocalypse direction. Pretty much, yeah. It's interesting, because the idea that the grand disaster of Legion's attack would lead to this, like, hella-mutant hate, it's actually kind of similar to the next story we're going to be covering, but we'll get to that later. Anyway, long story short, Nate Summers is raised by his parents in the Savage Land until Apocalypse's soldiers attack and kill everyone. Sauron carries Nate out to safety, but then passes out in Antarctica. I thought he died, but apparently not. Where Nate is picked up by Logan and Logan's ridiculous hair. Oh, seriously, it's like Logan's meltdown hairdo, but with a ton of volumizer. I, I do appreciate, though, that while they're in the Savage Land before uh, Scott and Jean get killed by the bad guys, um, the Savage Land apparently extends its loincloth dress code even to people who immigrate there, because Scott and Jean and Nate are all wearing the tiniest bits of ripped up cloth. Like, I know it's hot, but you can have, like, seams. It doesn't have to be just shredded bits of dinosaur hide. Can you? They've been there for long enough, I assume, that anything they originally brought wore out and they've basically gone with the most practical local options hey i've read the first few silver age issues of x-men i know that gene is very good at telekinetically sewing yeah but xavier was dead in this universe so no one had to force no one forced her to learn that oh man so like in the previous issue if magneto's not around the x-men are too soft and in this issue if xavier isn't around gene doesn't learn home economic skills yeah in fact that's actually the most salient difference between the universes i knew it Scott's also interesting here because he's blind. He has, uh, his eyes are ripped out. We learn that apparently he did that to, like, smuggle himself through an anti-mutant area past humans. So it's not really mentioned, but I choose to assume that he just sees everything through Jean's eyes through their psychic link. Kind of like how Psylocke saw through the eyes of everybody around her when she was blinded uh, back in the Captain Britain comic. Yeah, but Psylocke's a telepath. I mean... I think it's entirely reasonable to just assume that he's blind and perfectly competent at getting around. This is something that we know the character's experienced before and knows his way around. We know how strategic he is. I mean, I don't think that's a that's much of a reach. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's true. So, anyway. After this, uh, Nate proceeds to join the Defenders and then get all of them killed by being a dumbass. So, seriously, this book is about 80% Nate making bad choices, 19% Captain America yelling, and 1% Rick Remender making real sure that we know that Namor is only being a bad guy because he cares so much about Atlantis. Yeah, that comes up very briefly, but I agree that it's important. He's actually one of Apocalypse's horsemen uh, in this world. It comes up twice, and entirely gratuitously, at least the second time. <laughs> yeah. So, let's talk a little bit about the Defenders before we get straight to Nate's continuing series of bad decisions. So, we have The Thing. We have Ben Grimm. He's the only surviving member of the Fantastic Four, and he mentions at one point that Apocalypse actually tried to recruit the Fantastic Four as his initial four horsemen, but they refused and three of them were killed. And that's actually a really cool idea, like, having four horsemen that worked so well together and were so connected and had powers that were so varied, like, good call, M. Sabanur. So, we know this is Age of Apocalypse Apocalypse, so his horsemen don't strictly have to be on theme. Where, where would you sit these guys? What, what do you think they have in terms of, in terms of horsemen subjects or, or horsemen, horsemen sort of fields of influence? Uh, okay, so I would say that the thing, Ben Grimm, is probably the horseman of charming galoot speak, talking about, you know, why I oughta and it being clobber in time and his Aunt Petunia and stuff like that. I'm going to say that Reed Richards is the horseman of catastrophic failure to read the room. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Johnny Storm is probably the horseman of put that back in your pants. And Sue Storm is death. Perfect. Okay, it's canon. There we go. We also have a version of Captain Britain who's wearing, like, a Union Jack-colored early Iron Man armor, and that never really is gone into, but it's a neat concept and a neat visual. Doesn't look that good. But it's memorable. One of the things I really appreciate, though, so Steve Rogers, Captain America, is sort of the head of the Defenders, who are basically the Avengers, obviously— and he just has Mjolnir, like he's got his Captain America shield and he's got Mjolnir and nobody even comments on it because, well, of course if Thor's not around, Captain America's going to have Mjolnir. Like, that wasn't just a movie thing. Well, that was a thing from the comics, wasn't it, that, that Cap can wield Mjolnir? Oh yeah, that's come up a couple times. So, who else is on the team? We also have, I guess he's Dr. Voodoo at this point. We have Brother Voodoo, who is a, like, voodoo priest, magician guy, and he's taken over for Dr. Strange, who's dead. Well, no, he's not Dr. Voodoo. Dr. Strange is Dr. Strange because he's a doctor. Brother Voodoo is still the Sorcerer Supreme, but I think he's still also Brother Voodoo. Like, that's how he's referred to. It's Jeremiah Drum, either way, though. He's pretty great. I always had a soft spot for that guy. No, he's cool as hell. And we also have the Molecule Man, Owen Reese. You know, the guy who has powers that are basically infinite and was the center of Secret Wars? Aw, oh, that guy. Well, anyway, we have our team. Let's talk more about Nate Summers being a doofus. Yeah, my notes here are actually just a list of Nate's increasingly terrible choices. Choice the first, mind-controlling the Molecule Man to unlock uh, Molecule Man's powers and kill a bunch of people. Bad choice the second, ignoring Brother Voodoo's repeated admonitions that messing with the past is a bad idea. In Nate's defense, there's not really a good justification here, but still, this is the Sorcerer Supreme, he knows stuff, and also can be assumed to have better judgment than Stephen Strange. Yeah, but Brother Voodoo's judgment here isn't good. Like, yeah, I know he just met Nate, but I feel like anybody who's ever looked in the direction of Nate Summers slash Nate Gray knows one thing about him, which is that 
the best way to get him to do a thing is to tell him not to do the thing. So I'm kind of sad that Sinister didn't show up pretending to be Essex in this timeline, because I feel like that would have been hilarious with this lineup. Oh man, it would have been great. He would have played them so hard. Of course, we've also got Captain America, and Sauron is on the team, and I actually, Sauron isn't around for a lot of it, and I thought he was dead, but he shows up again in the last battle, kind of in the background, so, yeah. Anyway, let's go back to Nate's bad decisions. Right. Continuing on, he pressures Brother Voodoo into teleporting them through Dormammu's dark dimension, and once there, steals the fucking Eye of Agamotto and leaves Brother Voodoo behind. At which point, he drags the Molecule Man off and abandons the rest of their teammates so he can go beat up Apocalypse himself. And steal Apocalypse's clothes. Oh man, there is this one panel that works really, really well, though. It's Nate wearing Apocalypse's armor, like, not the helmet, so he's still got his face visible, about to undo history, exactly like Brother Voodoo told him not to do, just yelling, I can fix this! Which, honestly, is one of the most Nate Gray things I can think of. You got to imagine him, like, with an overturned um, kettle of spaghetti in that setup on a kitchen floor. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, Nate Gray, like, that character makes so many bad decisions in every universe he's in, and yet I have to love him because he's so goddamn earnest about every single one of them. Well, that's the great thing about omnipotence. There are unlimited ways you can fuck up. Yeah, so, uh, what's the big way he fucks up? He tries to go back in time. I assume it's just a final fuck you to Brother Voodoo, who I guess is dead in, in the dark dimension. But anyway, um, then Cap kills Nate and also accidentally shoots lightning through the time portal, killing thousands of people, including Xavier and Magneto, and causing all of the anti-mutant sentiment that led to this era in the first place, making it into one big, awful time loop. Okay, to Nate's credit... Maybe Nate's plan to go back in time would have worked. We don't know, because what really fucked everything up was Captain America shooting as Guardian Lightning into an interdimensional time portal. Which, I gotta say, Steve, bad call. You fucked up history. And what's more, we learn from the narration, because it's narrated by the Watcher, that apparently doing so screwed up, like, countless other parallel Earths as well. Although the Watcher also is definitely very solid on the fact that the moral of this story is essentially, damn it, Nate. And he at least places the blame squarely on Nate's shoulders, which either is unfair of him or is objectively correct because, after all, he's the Watcher. I mean, I do respect his giant head and short pants, but, like, nah, man, I, I gotta put the blame on Steve here. Now, don't get me wrong, if Steve hadn't killed Nate, I'm sure Nate would have fucked up in an even worse way. But still, that's not how it went down, so damn it, Steve. That brings us to What If Volume 2, number 81, skipping back a few years, What If the Age of Apocalypse Had Not Ended, or United We Stand. This is written by Mariano Nicieza, that's uh, Fabian Nicieza's brother, with colors and art by Kevin Hopgood, letters by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And yeah, we've seen Mariano write one thing we've covered. Gentle listeners, do you remember Be Extra Safe with the X-Men, one of the public service comics we covered ages ago? I remember it vividly, and often against my will. Yeah, that's the one where at one point Beast jumps out of some kid's television to tell the kid to not trust strangers. It's a thing. So is this issue, and this was published, uh, this is from the same series as the first one we looked at. Uh, this was published appropriately four months later in January of 1996. 
So that's Earth 9601, same naming convention. And this issue opens immediately after the end of X-Men Omega. Now, we haven't covered that yet, but we can do a slight spoiler for this decades-old comic and say, yes, the good guys do rewrite reality, and Earth goes back to normal as everything explodes. I mean, we know that in that there are 15 subsequent years of X-Men comics. Exactly. In this universe, though, while everything explodes, the... X-Men get away. They flew away from all the devastation of the humans' nuclear strike in North America, and a couple years later, got a call from the survivors of X-Universe to meet them in the blue area of the moon. And I love this. I love that the X-Universe survivors in a universe where the Age of Apocalypse didn't end, like, actually did make it into space, and happened to just stumble upon the part of the moon where you can breathe and there are a bunch of cool robot buildings all around. I... I love that they've been up there and decided they just weren't even going to check the news. Like, they were just like, fuck Earth. We're done. Yeah, that place sucks. We are so never going back there. So, you mentioned Mariano Cesar. Um, The artist by Kevin Hopgood, and... Wow. I, I, I get the impression just looking at it. Um, what it comes across as is, across as is something that is heavily photo-referenced, but with inconsistent models. It seems kind of like it was drawn in a very, very early version of Photoshop. It has this digital art, digital coloring feel to it that reminds me of a slightly more advanced version of the old Iron Man Crash graphic novel, which uh, bragged about being the first computer-generated graphic novel ever. There's also definitely a panel where Magneto looks a lot like Keanu Reeves, and it's really upsetting. I mean... I kind of wish I looked more like Keanu Reeves. Yeah, but like, it, it, it's, it's weird. It, it doesn't work in context. It's certainly strange. I will say, though, the super saturated, brightly colored look of this over-the-top comic, I think, fits it pretty well. Okay, fair enough. So, remind me, I know we looked at X-Universe um, last episode, but who's ended up on the moon? Who's survived? Who's, who are our central humans here? So after Donald Blake's tragic, glorious emotional sacrifice, we still have Tony Stark and his mustache, Gwen Stacy, Bruce Banner, and this time we have a couple new characters. We have Dwayne and Danielle Taylor. Those are Night Thrasher from the New Warriors and his brother Bandit, who was like also Night Thrasher for a little while, so I guess they're both Night Thrasher, but not here. So um, they're both, they are Night Thrasher, I believe is the correct way to put that. Yes, they are Knights Thrasher, and there are, like, a ton of other human refugees that our heroes escaped with, but none of them have names, so the hell with them. As far as the X-Men who showed up at the human's request, we have Magneto, Rogue, Quicksilver, Weapon X, Sunfire, who I guess must have quit his quitting because he wasn't in X-Men Omega, but he is here. Given the stuff that he went through in the series in which he appeared, I think it's reasonable that he took a few days off. That would be very reasonable, and this is a couple years later, so maybe he's finally ready to deal with mutant bullshit again. And not all of the heroes on the moon are into the idea of accepting mutant help or even working with mutants, but they're up against a wall because there is a big, big threat coming. You know how the humans got to the blue area of the moon? And you know what's in the blue area of the moon? I mean, besides a lot of other stuff? The Watcher's Voyeur Base. The Watcher's not around. Like, he narrates the story, but he's not actually in his base in the story. So, what you're saying is that the Avengers have spent the last two years on the moon watching people masturbate. 
I mean, basically, like, it's totally a voyeur base. There are just all these screens pointing at basically everybody. Wait, wait, what if the Watcher has, like, another secret headquarters with a big screen showing the screen there so he can spy not only on all the screens in his base, but also on what the people in his base are doing? I mean, that's a fine X-Men tradition, having somebody, like, with a Dr. Claw arm next to the monitor that they're spying on people with, and then having, like, that be in a monitor with somebody watching with their own Dr. Claw arm. Doctor's Claw. Doctor's Claw and Knight's Thrasher. Coming to HBO Max, or whatever they're calling it now. Pretty sure Fox still has the rights, but I might be mistaken. Oh, I think I might have reverted to Disney, actually. Well, anyway, I guess it's on Disney+. Plus. In the Watcher's base, once the humans got sick of just watching everyone masturbate all the time, they decided to turn their voyeur cameras toward the skies, where they noticed that Galactus and the Silver Surfer were coming to eat the planet. In all fairness, the Silver Surfer is probably not actually going to eat the planet. Oh, right, that was poorly phrased, but I don't know, maybe he just, like, takes a little nibble to taste it. Silver Surfer can have little a planet as a treat. Anyway, if you're unfamiliar with Galactus and the Silver Surfer, Galactus is a great big guy in a purple costume with bare legs that eats planets, uh, using a machine, not like a spork, and he always has a herald, which is some kind of being empowered with the power cosmic, uh, who sort of finds planets for Galactus to munch on. The Silver Surfer was one of Galactus's earlier heralds before he rebelled. In this universe, he is still Galactus's herald. His name is Norrin Rad because he's so rad. And in this case, what Galactus's Herald does for the most part is ethically find him, you know, unoccupied planets, but then stuff goes wrong and he comes to Earth. And anyway, this all gets covered a lot in the 616, but now he's here and it's a problem. So the heroes know what they have to do, but they have a little bit of time for some interpersonal drama before Galactus shows up. Logan and Dr. Banner as the Hulk fight because, like, of course they do. But as for Quicksilver and Gwen, they have a very different dynamic. Yeah, they they definitely basically instantly go, hey, so our respective partners are dead. And in this universe, we're weirdly compatible, so let's do that thing. I don't think we ever saw Storm die in the original Age of Apocalypse. Maybe they just have an arrangement. Well, Quicksilver mentions that he's lost his sister and he lost the woman he was with. In, in the same sentence, so I assume, based on that, that Aurora is also dead. Although, I guess that would fall under having an arrangement. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But, you know, I mean, Gwen Stacy in the Age of Apocalypse, first she was with Dr. Donald Blake, one of the greatest humans ever to live, who was also secretly a Norse god PS. Now she's hooking up with the most stable version of Quicksilver. She's got pretty good taste in men. She's also super kick-ass, so, you know, this is this is also testament. I feel like Quicksilver's taste is, is equally, if not more, to be lauded here, considering Storm and Gwen Stacy. Although, I'll also point out that even if this seems weird or out of character to you, Gwen Stacy is 100% as established multiversally Quicksilver's type, which is to say, blondes on the moon. Very good point. So, Gwen, what she also is, is a poetic flirter. We may never lose the hate and fear apocalypse has sown and war has taught. But I've learned as well that no matter what our differences, we're all still human. And they share a look that almost turns into a kiss. When Magneto pops in to add... That's good to know. Because we're all going to have to work together to defeat that alien behemoth. 
okay, this is waiting for the trade Magneto, and I refuse to believe otherwise. Dad, you always interrupt my makeouts with all that behemoth stuff. I love this. I love that they're having this tender moment, and Magneto's like, oh, hey, let's do some super shit. Wait, did I interrupt something? I don't care. I'm just going to link to a bunch of the, the Grandpa Magneto comics in the visual companion. Listeners, if you don't read Waiting for the Trade, you should, because it's delightful. Well, anyway, Quicksilver and Gwen uh, say the hell with this place, with Dad yelling about behemoths all the time, and they go and have some romantic conversations, and it's great. And yeah, it, it really, really works. Like, I'm invested in this couple. Yeah, and these are versions of them that really make sense clicking the way they do. It's pretty rad. Well, Galactus is getting closer, so it's time to rally, like, all the human survivors on the moon, and Sue Storm, another of the X-Universe survivors, delivers a rousing speech to do so, and she mostly wins them over. Well, mostly. Yeah, we've, we've got a guy in the universe who looks like Captain Picard, like, including his outfit, um, grumbling. Yeah, nudies are great, until one of them wants to marry your sister, or better yet, move in next door. On the moon, I guess, because that's where we are, so that's a weird thing to worry about. Also, here's what I'm worrying about in this scene. Are all of the random people here descendants of the, like, ten people who were in that shuttle? Because I have some questions. Oh no, I think they put a bunch of people in the shuttle. Like, they had a bunch of survivors. They were, uh, in the back. Not where the comic could see them. I don't know, man. Dwayne, though, you know, Night Thrasher, he's really not into this whole species harmony thing. He super hates mutants, and I mean, in this universe, certainly mutants have done a lot of very bad things. So he decides to randomly poke Watcher technology until he's powerful enough to beat Galactus without any stinking muties. A quick aside, I am really not into the heavy-handed. It's an allegory because, see, it's the black people who are racist in this story because they're, the they're the most vocally anti-mutant ones. Like, maybe, maybe just don't. Yeah, fair. But still, I love his explanation of what he's doing. My brother Bandit and I discovered this hidden room. It contains some sort of alien mind machine. We decided to keep it secret because we learned it could enhance a mind as a learning tool, or turn a man's brain into the greatest weapon ever created! Huh. That's like having a toaster with settings for bake and college degree. Like, I understand machines do multiple things, but that's a hell of a collection of features. So if those are the far ends of the dial, what's the midpoint? What's, what's halfway between bake and college degree? Like, well done toast? Hot pocket? Uh, I don't know. Buttered associate's degree? Fair. Galactus and his bare legs and his silver heralds on a surfboard do indeed show up to eat the planet Earth, and so Blink teleports all the good guys in to oppose him. But Dwayne, that's Night Thrasher, who is now a being of pure 90s CG, flies around, uh, zaps Galactus a lot, and has a change of heart about mutants in general when Quicksilver briefly saves Bandit, who ends up dying anyway, but that really doesn't affect uh, Dwayne's new stance on mutant-human relations. Yeah, it's almost like he's turned into Captain Universe, but his look is even more generic. He looks like he's just sort of made of, I don't know, gradients. Yeah, no, he's 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 Captain um, Polygonal Graphics. Mm -hmm. Some of the other heroes, meanwhile, while Galactus is being distracted by people zapping his bare knees, have their own mission. This leads to my favorite moment in the entire comic, when Sue Storm admonishes people for talking too loudly on a spaceship. 
because it might give the position of the spaceship away to Galactus. There are so many reasons that's ridiculous. Yeah. So they get to Galactus' ship, which they're going to, like, blow up, basically. And the Silver Surfer tries to sneak up on Logan, at which point Logan, who has super senses, just turns around and guts the Silver Surfer. Apparently the Power Cosmic does not give you bonuses on your stealth rolls or your soak rolls. I realize I just referenced both D&D and White Wolf rules in the same sentence, but that's fine. Although I guess White Wolf has stealth, too. Anyway. You know, it's a what if. You can you can do that. But I've actually got a reasonable in-universe explanation for this, which is that... First of all, he's very shiny. He's not visually subtle. But second, he mostly hangs out in the vacuum of space where sound doesn't travel. So maybe he just forgets that stuff makes noise when there's an atmosphere. Oh man, maybe he's just like singing whatever song is in his head at the top of his lungs all the time because he figures nobody can hear. What song would the Silver Surfer be singing? The chorus from Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Wait, Ode to Joy has lyrics? Yeah, I mean, they're in German, but they're... I. How do you not know this? You dated me for years during my obsessive classical music performer era, but also I know for a fact that you have seen the incredibly racist Beatles movie Help, in which that song is used to subdue an extremely concerned tiger. Oh. Oh yeah, the tiger song. You should have said it that way to begin with. Anyway, back to, uh, what if. So... Super CG Night Thrasher has a plan, which is to use his ill-defined powers to unite the mind of every human and mutant on the planet, and I guess moon, despite their differences and enmity and racism and stuff, into a pure blast of hope and emotion and intention to wallop Galactus. Wait a minute. I've seen this tactic before. Right, yeah, that's what Professor Xavier did with the Xenox at the end of the Silver Age X-Men. It's what Scott and Jean did at the end of Judgment War and X-Factor. And we know how badass, you know, superpower, extra-powered-up Night Thrasher is, because he didn't even have to fake his own death for months to accomplish this. Oh man, Xavier must be spinning in his grave. So, the metaphor is very on-the-nose, like, we have to overcome our bigotry so that we can turn are having overcome bigotry into a laser blast to kill the guy trying to eat the planet, but, you know, whatever. It's a blast of emotion plot line, and I do love those, and it's earnest, and it's about unity and happy things, and so I'll take it. Also, I appreciate that the issue just closes and does in no way address the fact that Night Thrasher is god now. Yeah, so Galactus is dead, the humans and mutants are mostly okay, and Night Thrasher is god. The end. So, every week that we've covered the Age of Apocalypse, we've kind of chosen a focus topic to talk about, you know, outside of the comics we were discussing, something in the larger universe. And this week we're going to kind of invert the actual subject of this episode and talk about our takes on what-if, you know, scenarios and how plausible they are as as connected to this universe. So as I recall from when we were talking earlier, you had a major objection with, like, all of this. Yes, and it ties into that Night Thrasher thing, too. Because here's the thing. Logically, in any timeline without Charles Xavier, Earth will have been destroyed by the Xenox long before the Age of Apocalypse or any of its variations comes to fruition. Yeah, that's right, because, well, like we were just saying, at the end of the Silver Age, the Xenox were going to totally annihilate Earth, and it was only up to, very specifically, Charles Xavier's big plan that that didn't happen. So yeah, actually, the, age, the main Age of Apocalypse shouldn't even have happened. 
Okay, but hear me out. So we know that Night Thrasher could use one of the Watcher's random microwaves or whatever to give himself the power to focus all of humanity's thoughts into a laser beam. So maybe in this timeline, back in the Silver Age, somebody else did that to take out the Xenox. I mean, shit, even Cyclops could do that like he did in Judgment War. Well, there, there's also a much simpler explanation, which is that the Xenox were among the first victims of the, you know, crystallization and shattering in Earth-295. That could be. So I looked up the Xenox when we were talking about them earlier, and I was very pleased to find that on their page uh, in the Marvel database, they have the following cultural traits listed. Inhumane, amoral, cruel, decadent, and lacking in all positive emotions. They are, they are really dedicated to their brand, aren't they? Jay, that kind of reminds me of that one Deadlands role-playing character you played one time where you just picked all the all the random negative traits. Like, what was it? Scrawny, illiterate, ugly as sin, and mean as a rattler? I loved that character. She was awful. Okay, she was awesome. And I, I did not choose all of the negative traits. I chose a specific batch of negative traits, and I maintain that they made for a really, really good collective character. That's legit. Uh, but also as far as the Xenox, uh, I found out from my research that their planet is called, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's basically, it looks like Who's Dare, which kind of makes them sound like they're part of a knock-knock joke. I think I'm falling in love with the Xenox, Jay. I mean, good luck. You, they've got no positive emotions, so you know it's not going to be reciprocal. Yeah, yeah. Well, what can you do? So, going back to these theoretical what-if scenarios, um... Xavier survives. What if Legion kills Magneto instead of Xavier? So in the comic, that turned the X-Men into a bunch of soft PR people who then got slaughtered by Apocalypse's folks, but I don't know if I buy that. I mean, honestly, in the Age of Apocalypse, we saw Magneto take a hard turn toward compassion and protecting the innocent and stuff like that in honor of his friend. I kind of wonder if Xavier would have gone in the opposite direction and taken on some of Eric's traits. The thing there, though, is that Eric didn't really talk a lot about his past to Xavier when they were buds back in Israel. What I can see happening, though, is Xavier digging up Magneto's past, learning about all of the horrible shit he'd been through, from the Holocaust to his daughter being killed by uh, anti-mutant mobs to the weird thing with Bova and the animal people on Windigore Mountain, but mainly just the, the bigotry that had defined Magneto's trauma. And I can see Xavier kind of radicalizing from that. From that. I can see him taking the X-Men to be a much more aggressive uh, mutant force. I could also see him picking up some Magneto traits along the way, and not the ones that specifically have to do with at radical anti-racism so much as the ones that have to do with creating weird human-mutant hybrids in the Savage Land. Like, that is a direction I could see an Xavier without a Magneto to measure himself against, being like, yes, this is an excellent plan. I'll fake my own death first, but, you know. That's a really, we'll run with that. That's a really good point. Like, you kind of have to wonder how much of Xavier being so very lawful good in some ways was because he had Magneto to compare himself to, and whether if he didn't have the other end of the pole, he would just take his ideals and run with them in whatever bizarre direction he could get away with. Yeah, bear in mind that Legion showed up in an era where, of the two of them, Magneto was more often the restraining influence when it came to things like picking fights with sailors. Very, very true. Uh, there was also the whole thing with Amelia Vote, and she was the one trying to keep Xavier from, you know, getting out there in public human mutant conflict. So I kind of wonder how she would factor into an even more radicalized Xavier. I wonder if she might end up opposing him more directly and becoming a more significant character. 
I mean, I would, I will, I will stick firmly with the much more amoral Xavier, much more ends justify the means Xavier. I'm thinking of the stuff he's specifically done at this point in experience and also the directions he's going to go, relation, his relationship to things like the Shadow King, ways those have shifted in other timelines. And I mean, I, I think what you end up with here is a Charles Xavier who is much more morally gray, not only when you examine his actions and motivations, but in his his public persona. You get a Charles Xavier who is if not necessarily more radical in his beliefs, more extreme in his practices. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, okay, let's call that the official Explain the X-Men answer for what would really happen if Magneto was killed instead of Xavier. What about the next one? What about a scenario where Legion killed both Xavier and Magneto? In the what-if issue we read, it just turned into a weird time loop where Nate Gray ruined everything, but what do we think would happen? I mean... I think, honestly, that's the scenario most likely to land us at the Age of Apocalypse as presented in the Age of Apocalypse comics. I think you're right, yeah, because we know that without, like, strong opposition, Apocalypse is going to rise and Apocalypse is going to take over the world or at least screw it up real bad. So I was trying to think, like, who would we have as a mutant leader if Xavier and Magneto were both off the table? Initially, my mind went to Haven because I always found her to be a fascinating character, but honestly, her philosophy came in part as a response to those two, and in part because she had a reincarnated adversary in the fetus that she was eternally pregnant with, comics, and if the adversary was never defeated by the X-Men, I don't think he would have to resort to such subtle and very weird tactics, so I think Haven wouldn't even be Haven in that universe. Also, philosophically, she's much more closely aligned with Apocalypse than with the X-Men. Yeah, that's that's kind of true. So for me, the first place I jumped there was Mystique. Mystique? Yeah, I mean, I guess we have seen her not really as a figurehead, not really as a person with a dream, but certainly she has a lot of leadership experience. I mean, I think what we'd have in that universe is a much more organized, but differently organized resistance, probably one that's got more mutant human integration and and connected work and in general a scenario that's much more close to what we've seen in the Ascani timelines where instead of being a specific team or a specific centralized group the resistance is more of a cultural movement that could be kind of cool in a world like that i think one part of that movement if we're looking for super teams i think emma would absolutely have started her hellions and i think that they might grow into the equivalent of the x-men in this world I disagree. I think they would all all have been killed in this world because the ways that the Age of Apocalypse echoes and plays out epic tragedy narratively definitely lend themselves to that. Oh man, so you're saying you don't think they would have been an effective resistance because the story would have been more dramatic if they just all died? Yeah, because what you have to keep in, in mind in any of these scenarios as we're talking through them is these aren't real people. This isn't a real plausible world. This is a world that ultimately exists primarily for entertainment purposes true so they are kind of bound by the laws of drama yeah okay yeah as far as other leaders all right there's moira mctaggart and she could totally be involved in all of that but as far as all the timeline stuff that went down in house of x and powers of 10 i don't even know where that would go and that would be like another episode trying to figure that out we've also got super doctor astronaut peter corbeau who in a world without magneto might have risen to the challenge of trying to fill xavier's shoes 
Oh man, Corbeau is the leader of the Resistance? Apocalypse wouldn't stand a chance. Yeah, so maybe this is actually the best timeline? I don't know. What if Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau fixed everything? He's like the anti-Nate Grey! Oh my god, you're right. He's just really reasonable and competent and doesn't have any superpowers. So decisions now go on a spectrum with, at one end, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau as the complete paragon of judgment, and at the other, Nate fucking Gray. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> okay, so lastly, what if the Age of Apocalypse continued? So, canonically, as we've mentioned, it did. We had a miniseries in 2005 that led into an ongoing series in 2012, and the mini was kind of interesting, like the X-Men's heroism sort of healed the rift between humans and mutants, and we saw some younger X-Men joining up, a new generation. But then the ongoing, while I do like it in many ways, kind of went straight back to the original Age of Apocalypse status quo. There was a big bad who enforced mutant supremacy and slaughtered all the humans, and it was just like the same old Age of Apocalypse again, which, come on, if you're going to continue the AOA, then do something with it. Yeah, have Nate Gray rebuild the theater troupe. There we go. That's what I want to see. What if X-Man fulfilled its potential as a comic book by having that theater troupe be the focus of all of it? Well, that actually segues to what I would want to see from a continued Age of Apocalypse, which is largely shorter stories. I'd want to see the stuff that we missed on the big scale. I'd want to see communities rebuilding. I'd want to see different regional responses. I'd want to see ways that different civilizations and cultures rebuilt and what came out of those ashes. I'd love to see that focused on through the next generation of mutants. I would love to see the equivalence of the new mutants or Gen X or whatever growing up in this world that is attempting to rebuild from the ashes of dystopia and cataclysm. Yeah, no, I want I want the Age of Apocalypse version of my theoretical magical miniseries Tales from the Heartbreak Hotel. I love this plan. Well, what we love almost as much as Tales from the Heartbreak Hotel, oh, let's be real, what we love even more are our listeners. And they've got questions. Jesse Lindsay emailed us to ask, Hey, what's up with Aurora's eyes? There's a lot of good literature covering the fact that she's got blue eyes, and I'm pretty sure you've addressed that before. What I'm talking about is her pupils. Early on, they were typically drawn as ovals or even slits like cat eyes. What's up with that? Has it ever been explained? When did artists stop drawing her that way most of the time? And why? Well, I don't know why they stopped, but the origin of that is actually really cool. So we may have covered this at some point way back in the day, but Dave Cockrum, who drew Giant Size X-Men number one and then the first number of issues of X-Men after that, he actually first created Nightcrawler as a character for the Outsiders, who were a team in DC's Legion of Superheroes corner of the DC Universe. A lot of those characters were rejected, though, and so he brought some of them to Giant Size X-Men number one. Nightcrawler he just brought over. Nightcrawler looks identical between the original design and X-Men. Storm ended up being a mix of three outsider characters, Quetzal, Trio, and Black Cat. There's actually an answer to that question. It gets spelled out to some length in 1993's X-Men Anniversary magazine. Storm is perhaps the best example of how a character's look develops from creative conception to creative result. Ween and Roy Thomas had conceived of a male X-Man with the power to manipulate weather. Cockrum had already designed an alluring female named Quetzal, but everyone thought Dave's design for an African-American shapeshifter named the Black Cat better fit the X look. So they took the Black Cat's powers and Quetzal's beautiful features and combined them into Storm. Uh, fun fact, one of the villains from, again, Cockrum's Legion pitch eventually became Fang of the Imperial Guard. 
And his name before the creation of Logan, um, again, in that Legion pitch, was actually Wolverine. Yeah. So, yeah, Storm has cat eyes because her character design was based on a previous character who was like a half-cat, half-human shapeshifter lady. What's kind of blowing my mind for this is that the powers of this black cat character were apparently weather manipulation. Uh, I think that may have been a uh, a misquote or a, a misspeaking in that magazine because, um, yeah, I think it was more like black cat's look and Quetzal's powers. Okay, that makes sense. Anyway, 100th Idiot asks on Tumblr, Hi, I don't know if this has been answered before, but how much are your character voices influenced by their animated counterparts? I've never watched the 90s X-Men cartoons, and your Sinister and Apocalypse seem very specific. So mine are really not informed by it at all. Maybe Storm is a little bit, but none of the others. Um, I pretty much come up with my character voices whole cloth based on details you'd get that stuff from in the comics, um, and ditto the specific digital effects that that I end up requesting um, for them from, from our producers. As for Sinister, man, I think... When I, I, I was going back and like doing the voice and trying to think about where I had pulled it from today in, while I was thinking about this question, and I think I actually kind of unconsciously pulled a lot of it from Vincent Price, maybe with some John Truitt as Galleon thrown in. Oh man, from Lunar the Silver Star? Yeah, yeah. Not sinister, dear Quark. Magical Emperor Sinister. Oh man, listeners, if you want to play a great old classic RPG, Lunar the Silver Star, they re-release it for PlayStation. It's freaking great. Working designs localizations are amazing. But yeah, like I, I thought a lot about how Sinister would talk. And he's over the like he's he's specifically the Vincent Price thing comes in because he's very much an old school B-movie villain. Like he's that kind of declamatory. He's that kind of dramatic. Like he knows he's playing the room and he's really enjoying that aspect of it. But 100th Idiot, yeah, you totally got me. A bunch of my voices are straight from the cartoon. Definitely Wolverine, Rogue, Gambit, Cable, Apocalypse, when I do Sinister. Kind of Magneto, but like only when Magneto's being really cartoony in the comic. And I think my mojo voice started with a cartoon version, and then I just like took it way too far. Characters who aren't, though, Jean Grey is not. Uh, the cartoon version of Jean just never sounded like Jean to me. She doesn't have the confidence or the warmth that I always associated with Jean Grey. And uh, Sexy Dracula and Shinobi Shaw, those are all mine. I claim full credit and full blame. So these aren't actually, like, main characters that you voice, and I don't know if it's X-Men I'm pulling them from, but the way you do, like, random villains like the Reavers has really intense Saturday morning cartoon vibes for me in general. I watched so many Saturday morning cartoons as a kid, so I fully believe that they just, like, leached into my very marrow and just come out for stuff like that trying to think of anything else that sort of goes into mine um when characters have distinct fonts i try to sort of base the voices on what i think those fonts are trying to evoke that's definitely what's going on with feral and i regret it deeply to this day eh, it's fine she won't be showing up for ages so we are an entirely listener supported podcast and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today the mic goes to none other than the devourer of worlds himself, Galactus. Galactus hungers, and Galactus must feast. Alice Trisler, to you I have gifted the power cosmic, and you have brought me to devour. 
An Earth where Legion tried to heal the rift between Xavier and Magneto by helping them start a bobsled team. I mean, I guess a planet is a planet, but this is not a gourmet meal. Okay, maybe my other Herald Kaylee Ryherd will find something better. Kaylee, you used the power cosmic to find... An Earth where Legion helped Xavier and Magneto recognize their love and live their soulmate truth. Okay, that Earth is way too wholesome for me to eat. I guess Taco Bell is probably still open. Also, I think maybe I need a new Herald. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week is somehow the 300th episode of our podcast. And what better way to celebrate than resetting the universe with X-Men Omega. Omega.